Okay, if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 27 is where we're going to spend the majority of our time uh, this morning. So this last week, when I couldn't sleep, um, I started watching a film, and I hesitate to tell you this, (laughs) but I started watching a film called Knives Out. Has anybody seen it? Okay, good. So I started watching this late the other night. Uh, It was released in 2019, and it stars Daniel Craig. If you're not sure who Daniel Craig is, Daniel Craig is the guy who has been playing the James Bond character for the last four or five films. He's excellent in James Bond. He's better in this film. He's wonderful in it. So he's in it as a private investigator, and he co-stars alongside of Christopher Plummer. I believe it was one of Christopher Plummer's last roles before he passed away. Christopher Plummer, of course, is better known as Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music. I would start singing to you right now, but my wife put a kibosh on that after last week. (laughs) So Plummer's character in it is kind of this patriarchal grandfather who is incredibly wealthy due to his success as a, a mystery author. He, was a, he wrote um, murder mysteries. Uh, an, he was authored many of these murder mystery books. He, was, he came, became incredibly wealthy for doing it. And so the premise of the movie is he dies, Plummer's character dies, and it sets off all this chain of reactions of backbiting and conspiracy and conspiring in different factions within the family all to try to inherit his vast fortune. It all became this really, this family that on the surface was able to hold back the dysfunction while he was alive. All of a sudden, it just gets full-blown family dysfunction. And everybody's trying to clamor and work against each other to try to inherit. And like I said, it's a murder mystery. So there's, there's all sorts of plot twists and tension and it's quite well done. There's a little bit of language So if you're sensitive to that, you probably should turn on your streaming filter. Um, But it's a wildly entertaining film. And as I was watching it, I thought to myself, you know, dysfunctional families, it makes for pretty good entertainment. I mean, it is the reason why soap operas and the Kardashians have been on TV forever. It's because dysfunctional families on TV are wildly entertaining. And yet in real life, (laughs) well, in real life, it's not entertaining. It's quite painful. It's really quite painful. And maybe you come from a dysfunctional family. And you know how painful it is. And for some families who have a little bit of dysfunction, um, they can hide it. And they can hold it together for for a good amount of time. But if there's an inheritance at stake, then the dysfunction becomes exasperated. And what was held at bay for so long, what was hidden hidden for so long, all of a sudden becomes full-blown. And it becomes very obvious and it becomes very painful. And again, maybe you've seen that. Maybe you've experienced that within your own family. I know as a pastor, I've seen it. Uh, I've seen families work through issues when an inheritance comes to play. And it gets really ugly, really, really quickly. In fact, I was telling somebody this past week, I've never seen a family inheritance gone smoothly. Never seen it happen. Um, and in our text this morning, we're, looking, we're going to be looking at one of the most dysfunctional families of all of history. They actually make the Kardashians look wise. That's how dysfunctional this family is. Um, it's in the account, Genesis chapter 27. We're going to be looking at the family of Isaac and Rebekah. And we will see how the, the um, parental preferences that Isaac and Rebekah uh, started to sow the seeds of in, in Genesis chapter 25. How it leads to family discord and then full-blown division. As the family splits off into factions and they start fighting against each other, all vying to be the inheritor of the Abrahamic covenant. 
So Genesis chapter 27 is where we're going to be. And we've seen, because we looked at Genesis 25 just a couple of weeks ago, we've seen the family dysfunction begin in Genesis 25, where we learn that Isaac and Rebekah, these, the two parents, that the, the marriage that started so wonderfully, because remember, they were brought together providentially by the Lord. But apparently over time, Isaac and Rebekah, for whatever reason, they slowly started drifting apart. And we'll see some of the reasons why in our text today. But their marriage that started so wonderfully started to deteriorate. And the seeds that were sown in Genesis 25, that we were told that Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob, this parental preferences. Isaac loved Esau because he was kind of this man's man. He was always in the wilderness. He was always hunting game. He always cooked the best food. And we, when he was bored, he was watching the outdoor channel while Jacob was kind of this homebody. He was kind of a mama's boy. Stayed at home all the time. And when he was bored, he watched the Food Network. These two children, each of them, they, there was this parental preferences. And these parents started tr- loving one child more than the other. And so instead of working together... Isaac and Rebekah, to ensure that both of their children are loved equally, they started showing their preferences. They started loving one child more than the other. By the way, that's never good. It's never wise. It's never beneficial. And the seeds of discord that are sown here lead to full-blown division by the end of our text today. So, chapter 27 is where we're going to be. Um, And again, it's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. Because the section actually begins in the last two verses of Genesis chapter 26. And then the passage ends in verse 9 of chapter 28. So it's a pretty big section. Um, so we're going to have to kind of move pretty quickly, which I know is to your delight. Um, I know there are football games on TV today. Pastor Bill's here. His 49ers play at 3.30, so he, he wants me to hurry this up. <laughs> I promised him we'd get him home in time. So, this story, here, here's what it is. It revolves around four people. Uh, four people. And none of them seem all that concerned about what the Lord might actually be doing and saying. They're all self-seeking. None of them are really concerned with what the Lord actually wants. It's, it's a wonderfully told story. It's masterfully told. It's full of all sorts of tension and all sorts of uh, twists and all sorts of schemes. So, let me give you the outline. This is the, there's five scenes to this story and this will serve as our outline. Here's the, here's the first thing we'll see. The first scene it's, is, uh, Isaac's dereliction. If you're a note taker, take note of this. It's Isaac's dereliction. And that's in verses 34 of chapter 26 through verse 4 of chapter 27. Isaac's dereliction. He disregards his covenant responsibilities. And what he tries to do is he tries to put forward his plan Rather than God's plan. He knows what the Lord's plan is. And he utterly disregards it. He's self-seeking. And he tries to put forward his plan rather than the Lord's plan. So it's Isaac's dereliction. Second scene is Rebecca's deviousness. Rebecca's deviousness. And that's in verses 5 through 17. And Rebecca is really the um, principal actor in this story. And that's unfortunate. Because you'll see, she's anything but principled. Um, all of her actions are unprincipled. And so Rebecca's deviousness, that's in verses 5 through 17. Third scene is Jacob's deception. Jacob's deception, that's in verses 18 through 29. He goes along with his mother's scheme and he deceives his elderly father. So it's, it's a horrible thing. He, he actively seeks to deceive his aging father. 18 through 29, that's Jacob's deception. Fourth thing, we'll, the fourth scene is Esau's devastation. That's in verses 30 through 40. Esau comes in and he seeks to receive a blessing, but instead he receives an anti-blessing. And he cries in despair, and then he plots the destruction of his younger brother Jacob. And then finally, in chapter 27, verse 41, 27, 41 through 28.9, what we'll see, the last scene, is family division. Family division. This, this family is completely divided. In the end, what you'll see is nobody wins. And everybody loses. 
Nobody wins and everybody loses. At no point in this count, what you'll see is the family all together. Nobody, at no point is the family all gathered together discussing the offense. What you'll see is they're in factions. And there's infighting. There's fighting and infactions. There's factions going on. It's just an ugly thing all the way throughout. And yet, in spite of all of the failures of the family, the Lord's grace wins. And the Lord's purposes will move forward despite these people's failures. And that is wonderfully encouraging if you're a Christian. Because let me ask you, do you fail from time to time? (laughs) Yeah. And yet the Lord's grace wins. He will carry forward his purposes in and through your failures. He, he, well, we'll talk about it in a second. But he will carry forward all of his purposes in spite of your failures. Okay, so let's get into the text. Last two verses of chapter 26. Here's how... The story begins. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Bari, the Hittite. Uh, The Hittites uh, were reckoned to be people of the Canaanites. So he takes Judith, the daughter of Bari, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they, not just one wife, notice that, by the way, he takes two wives. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. When, when Isaac, chapter 27, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Okay, so the opening lines of chapter uh, 27 tell us that Isaac's an old man at this point. He's he's, uh, 100 years old at this point. If you do the math from when Esau was born and, and how old he is now, um, you know that Isaac's 100 years old. And his physical blindness that we read about, it actually matches his spiritual blindness. Because as he goes to bless, um, as he goes to bless Isaac, or as he goes to bless Esau, he completely disregards his covenant responsibilities. Well, where do we see that? Well, first, we see that he's blind to Esau's character. He's completely blind to Esau's character. The story actually begins in verses 34 and 35 of chapter 26 with Esau's two marriages. And then the story ends in chapter 28, verse 9, with Esau taking another wife. And it's not just one Canaanite wives, it's two Canaanite wives, which goes against the instruction of his grandfather Abraham. And again, what it does is it shows Esau's lack of commitment to the Abrahamic covenant. And his unworthiness. Abraham, his grandfather, had told the family, you're not to marry outside of our family. You're to go back to my people and get one of my people. He marries not just one wife. He takes not just one wicked Canaanite to be a wife. But he takes two wicked Canaanites in this first opening scene to become his wife. So it shows he's completely unworthy to receive the blessing. And yet Esau is blinded to, or Isaac is blinded to Esau's character. And he's determined to bless him. So he's blinded to Esau's character. Second thing, he's blind to God's plan. Remember back in, uh, do you guys remember this? In, in Genesis chapter 25, Rebecca receives an oracle from the Lord. And the Lord told her that he was turning the cultural conventions on its head. And he was going to bless the younger son. He was going to give the birthright to the younger son rather than to the older son. And the older son, Esau, was going to actually serve the younger son. Do you guys remember that? Okay, good. Which meant the younger son was actually going to inherit the privileged position. He was going to inherit the double portion of the property. He was going to inherit the patriarchal mantle. And because he was Abraham's son, he was going to inherit the Abrahamic covenant. And Isaac, no doubt, knew about this. But in spite of what God, the word that God had given, Isaac is now preparing to insert his own plan. 
He's trying to overthrow God's plan and insert his own plan. He's trying to bless Esau over and against Jacob. Again, he's showing incredible parental preference. He's trying to bless uh, Esau, not Jacob, even though he knows God's already given the covenant to Jacob. So he privately, what he does is he privately calls Esau to give him the blessing that the Lord has reserved for Jacob. That's, by the way, why he does it privately. Because in other accounts of, of blessings, it was always done in a public fashion. But that's why he does it privately. Um, by the way, let's talk about, let's ask this question. What is the blessing? Have you ever read this account and you're like, what the heck is the blessing? Because some people think it's the exact same thing as the birthright. But it's a little bit different. Um, so what is the blessing that Isaac is trying to give away here? Here's what it is. Um, we all know that words shape us, right? If you were a young child and your parent came to you and said, you're ugly, you're stupid, you're worthless, I don't love you, I don't want you, those words would have a shaping mechanism in your life, would they not? Um, they could be spoken decades ago and yet they're they're still an operational force in your heart and your mind. They would shape you for forever. See, words, they can devastate us. Or they can comfort us, and they can lift us up for years and years. A blessing then, you take that concept. A blessing then is words of af- affirmation that takes into account who the person is, how the Lord has shaped them, and how the Lord is shaping their destiny. And this, these types of words of affirmation like this, they shape us, they shape us and they empower us for years to come. They're words of affirmation. If a person who's much, much older than you that you look up to greatly, whether it's your parent or it's one of your grandparents or it's some type of person that you know, know just on the outskirts of your life, but you really admire them, if they come into the, your life and they say, I see you, I value, I love you, I'm going to make a way for you. You know what those words do for you? Those are life-giving words. They will shape your life forever. If someone who you greatly admire comes to you and says, I see you, I value you, I love you, I will make a way for you. Oh, that's the best news in the world. And we all crave it. We crave it. It's the reason why we try to validate ourselves all over the place. It's the reason we try to validate ourselves through our careers or through uh, our work or through academics or through athletics or through religiosity. We're craving somebody to come alongside of us and say, I see you, I value you, I love you, I will make a way for you. We're seeking that all the time. For someone to say, I see who you really are, how the Lord has created you and gifted you, and how the Lord is shaping your destiny. These are life-giving, life-empowering words, life-altering words. This is the blessing. That's the type of blessing we're talking about, and we all crave that. And so Isaac, this is what he's hoping to bestow now upon his older son. And so he calls Esau, uh, he's blinded to Esau's, Esau's character, he's blinded to the Lord's plan, but he calls Esau, Esau in to pronounce his blessing upon him as the firstborn child. This was reserved for the firstborn. And so he goes and he calls him and he says, I want you to go hunt some game for me. I want you to cook it up just the way that I love my, my delicious meat. I want you to cook it up that way. Bring it into me. Prepare it for me. I'll eat it. I'll bless you. And then I'll die. That's, that's um, Isaac's plan. And this is where Rebecca's devious plan kicks in. Look at verse 5. Now Rebecca, now Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went went to the field to to hunt for a game, to hunt for game and bring it back, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, "I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food, that I may eat it and bless you before the um, I may bless you before the Lord." Before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats 
so that I may prepare for them, uh, so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. Look at this, look at this Machiavellian plan by Rebecca. Husbands, this is why you don't tick off your wives, because she's smarter than you. At every level, she's smarter than you. Um, by the way, note in verse 1, uh, when Isaac addresses Esau, he addresses him as my son. And then when Re- Rebecca addresses Jacob in verse 8, she addresses him as my son. It's another way the author is indicating the family dysfunction within this family. Uh, there's so much dysfunction. Each one is addressing the son as my son, my son. So she hatches this plan. She tells Jacob to go and kill two young goats real quickly. She'll cook it up just as the old man likes. And then he can take it in. And that way he, Jacob will be blessed and not Esau. See, what she's trying to do, she's trying to manipulate Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing instead of Esau. And her scheming demonstrates a complete failure of faith. That's what it actually demonstrates. Because she's already received the oracle from God saying that Jacob is the chosen son. It was through Jacob that the blessing would come. It was Jacob through whom the promises of God would continue. But Rebecca here is taking matters into her own hands. She's taking it into her own hands. She's not seeking God. She's not trusting the Lord. She's not going to the Lord about it in prayer. She's taking it to her own hands. She's thinking to herself, desperate times call for desperate measures. What she's doing is she's embracing the sin of believing that the ends justify the means. I wonder if you've ever been tempted into believing that the ends justify the means. I wonder if you've ever been tempted to pursue worldly ends to justify the means. I got to tell you, I think this is something we all struggle with. We're all tempted to do. I got to tell you in the evangelical church, in the evangelical church as a, as a church movement, the evangelical church has been guilty of this, no doubt. We've turned a blind eye. We've overlooked obvious character faults because the person was gifted. I think politically we've done this. Again, we've, we've turned a blind, blind eye to immoral character in order to pursue a favorite candidate. I think we do this personally. We just think, well, I'll just shade the truth over here a little bit in order to get this position. See, all of that is the sin of um, the ends justify the means. You see, the temptation that Rebecca gives into and that we're prone to give into is the sin of believing that the end justifies the means. And we oftentimes will pursue it in worldly ways. We won't trust the Lord with it. We'll say, well, we got to do it ourselves. She certainly does that. She thinks, well, in order to bring this about, in order to bring about God's purposes, I got to just, I got to deceive my husband and have my son lie to his father. How crazy making is that? If you, if you think to yourself, in order to, in order to bring about God's purposes, I got to go outside the moral boundaries of God's word. That's crazy making in and of itself. Uh, and, and if you think you have to lie to bring about God's purposes, God's will, that's probably a pretty good indicator that you're not actually thinking within the gospel. That's a pretty good indicator you're not actually thinking within the gospel. So she hatches this plan for Jacob to go and kill these two young goats and then to bring them in and deceive the old man in order to, de- to deceive Isaac. And so she tells Jacob this plan and Jacob hears the plan and he's thinking, hold up. Wait a minute, there's a couple of problems here with this plan. Look at verse 11. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man. <laughs> and I'm a smooth man. Remember we, heard, we read when, when Esau was born, he came out all fuzzy. He was a very hairy man. They actually named him Harry. And so Jacob's like, look, I can't grow a beard. I've been trying my entire life. I can't grow a beard. Esau, he's covered in hair, mom. Perhaps, verse 12, perhaps my father will feel me. And I shall, see, I shall seem to be mocking. Mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. And his mother said to him, let your curse be on me. 
my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. And then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the younger goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared uh, and the food which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he, he puts on this goat hair. She prepares this delicious meal. She gives it to him. He's walking in, into this room seeking to deceive his dad. And you got to think his heart is beating out of his chest. Um, he walks into that room probably a little bit trembling. His heart's beating as fast as it could go. And he's going in there to deceive his dad. So he went in, verse 18, went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau. <laughs> Your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up. And eat of my game that your soul may bless me. So he lies about his identity. He says, I'm Esau, your firstborn. And those words to a dad, oh, those are everything. Firstborn, my firstborn is here. Yes, it brings joy and comfort to Isaac. And so he lies to Isaac about his identity. And now he blasphemes the Lord. Look at verse 20. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord, your God, hmm, the Lord, your God granted me success. So he blasphemes the Lord because the Lord's not involved in this at all. This is not, this, the Lord's not here scheming about this. He blasphemes the Lord. Notice he says, the Lord, your God. So he's just coupled his lie now with blasphemy. And then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel, feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy. Like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? This whole time, Isaac's got questions. He's, he's not completely buying it. He said, I am. And then he said, bring it near me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate. And he brought him wine and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, and this is the prophecy, this is the blessing. See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you, may God give of you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So this is the blessing that Isaac thinks he's giving to Esau, but in reality he's giving to, G, uh, he's giving to, uh, Jacob. So first he says prosperity. That's financial success. That's the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth. Plenty of grain and plenty of wine. So he's blessing him with prosperity. Financial success is what's being spoken over. Second, political and military success. That's in verses uh, 29, verse 29. That's the part about let peoples serve you. And let nations bow down to you and be Lord over your brothers. So financial success, political and military success. And then lastly, he inherits the Abrahamic covenant. The very last line in, in the uh, blessing. Verse 29, it says, Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. That's straight out of the covenant that was given to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. So Jacob has done it. He deceives Isaac. He receives 
the blessing. And the, and the scene now shifts from Jacob's deception to Esau's devastation. Look at verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? Hmm. And all the alarm bells in, in Isaac's mind are going off. They're on full blown right now. He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. And then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it. I ate it. I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes. And he shall be blessed. Isaac knows at this point he's been completely deceived. And yet he also knows that the blessing is irrevocable at this point. And though he intended to bless Esau, God's plan and God's purposes will not be thwarted. And the Lord will accomplish what he intends. And now, why he's shaking violently is because he knows Isaac. He knows that Isaac, um, he knows that Esau now will have to serve the younger son. Esau, the firstborn, will have to serve the younger son. And what's left for Esau is despair and devastation, anti-blessing. Look at verse 34. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with exceedingly great and a bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said to him, Isaac said to him, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright. And behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered him and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you. And all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing? My father, bless me also, even me, O oh my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And then Isaac, his father, answered him and said to him, Behold, now this is an anti-blessing. He says, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling. And away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword, by your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. And so instead of receiving a blessing, he receives, Esau receives this anti-blessing. And what it really is, it's the exact opposite of what Jacob received. So instead of prosperity, he will struggle. Uh, he will live by the sword and he will serve his brother. And later, when he becomes restless, he'll break the yoke off. Uh, his nation will break the yoke off, which is, comes, to, comes to pass in Second Kings chapter 8. And so Esau is devastated. He cries out. He just la- la- wails. He cries out. But notice, he doesn't, cry over, he doesn't cry out over what he has personally done to contribute to this mess. He doesn't cry out over what he's done to contribute to this. He cries out over what he's lost. Because Esau doesn't care about the covenant itself. Why? How do we know that? Well, he's already sold his birthright. He's already married two Canaanite women. So it's not like Esau wants to live, live out. He doesn't, Esau doesn't want to live with God in, inside the covenant. It's, he's already made that abundantly clear. He doesn't actually care about the covenant. He doesn't actually care about walking with God. What he's crying out over is he's lost the blessings of the covenant. He doesn't want the covenant itself. He wants the blessings of the covenant. So he's not weeping over his sin. He's weeping over the consequences of his sin. And we see that quite a bit in our world. They're not weeping over their actual sin, but the consequences of our sin. And that's a big difference. A huge difference. It's exactly what Paul said about, talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Do you guys remember 2 Corinthians 7? Paul said, he talks about the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. Do you guys remember that passage? Paul says, Worldly grief um, leads to remorse and then death. 
Because it doesn't actually bring about repentance, which would bring forth life change. He says, but godly grief leads to repentance, which leaves, which leads to salvation and leaves no regret. See, God, worldly grief just brings you to remorse, but it doesn't actually bring about life change. And we see a lot of, we see a lot of worldly grief. In our culture. It's why people cry over the things that they've done. But then there's not actual life change on the back end of it. It's why when you see somebody who has a DUI. And they swear to themselves they're never going to drink again and get in the car. Five years later the whole same, same mess is all over the place again. That's worldly grief. Godly grief is a deep uh, anguish over your sin which actually leads you to repentance of coming to the Lord and repenting of your sins and trusting him that leads to salvation and that leads to life change and Esau doesn't have any of that there's no repentance in Esau there's grief there's tears but there's no repentance and we actually see instead of repentance there's anger and the family discord gives way to full blown division look at verse uh, 41 now Esau hated Jacob. <laughs> he hated Jacob because of the blessing which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob her younger son and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you've done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? And then Rebekah went into Isaac. And she said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And so Isaac called Jacob, chapter 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Ram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty. Oh, Isaac started thinking about the Lord. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. So again, now he, he knows. He's reasserting the Abrahamic covenant um, to Jacob. He knows without a doubt it's coming through Jacob, so he blesses him again. He gives him the, the Abrahamic covenant again, so everybody knows that the covenant's coming through Jacob. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus, Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah. Jacob and Esau's mother. Now Esau, verse 6, saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and then sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and gone, gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael. Who was Ishmael? Abraham's, or um, sorry, Isaac's brother, who did not inherit the covenant. He went there. Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, beside the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nabioth. And the account stops there. Now look at this. This family, <laughs> I told you, they're worse than the Kardashians. This family has moved on from discord to deep alienation to full-blown division. As Esau plots his revenge, thinking he's going to kill his brother, his plan is to kill his, his brother after Isaac dies. Rebecca finds out about it. She hatches a whole new plan. 
which has just a smidge of um, legitimacy to it. Hey, our son's old. He needs to find a wife. Let's send him back to, back to the homeland. And in the back of her mind, she's thinking that's actually going to keep him safe. And maybe he will find a wife while he's there. And so she sends him off. She goes in. She gets, she deceives her husband again. And he sends, he sends, um, sends him off, Jacob off. And Rebecca will never see her son again. Jacob will live the next 20 years of his life in exile. And Rebecca will pass away before ever seeing her favorite son again. It's brutal. The family is completely divided. Did you notice as you read the account that not one scene, there was not one scene where the whole family was together. Not one of them. Not one scene where you have Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Esau all together in one room working out their problems together as a family. You don't see that. You have little factions working against each other. You have Isaac and Esau. And then you have Rebecca and Jacob. And then you have Esau and Isaac. And then you have Rebecca and Isaac. But you never have them all working together, working this out. Never working on their family, never working on their marriage. They're completely divided. And Esau, Esau, Isaac's favorite son, he goes to his dad's side of the family to get a wife. While Jacob, who is Rebecca's favorite son, he goes to his mom's side of the family to get a wife. They're completely divided all the way to the bitter end. And so the seeds of discord that were sown earlier with Isaac and Rebecca, it produces this bitter harvest of family dysfunction and division. And the account ends right there. And uh, we'll do the same. It's a tragic story. Is it not? I mean, you read it and you think to yourself, past the Prozac. I mean, this is, this is utterly depressing. Well, what do we learn from it? What do we learn from it? Three things. Let me give them to you. Let me suggest three things. Here's the first thing we see. First, first note this. In families, in families, more often than not, As the man goes spiritually, so goes the family. That's the first thing we see. In families, more often than not, as the man goes spiritually, so goes the family. Now listen, I know that's not a popular opinion these days. But it is a biblical one. So as the family goes, or as the man goes spiritually, so goes the family. And again, that's not a popular opinion. But it is a very biblical one. You see it all the way throughout the scriptures. Husbands and fathers, the man of the house, they're to provide loving leadership in the home. And when they do it, when they do it under the lordship of Jesus Christ, it brings stability in the home. And when they don't do it, it brings instability. And we see that in this account. That Isaac doesn't provide loving leadership. He's seen as passive and weak. And it's presented to us Right off the bat. But you have to be with us in the account of Genesis to actually see it. Because it's presented so quickly right off the bat. Did you notice how old Esau was when he took himself two Canaanite wives? How old was he? He was 40. Well, let me ask you this. How old was Isaac when Abraham took the initiative and sought out and secured a bride for Isaac? How old was Isaac? He was 40. You see, the parallel is right there. And Isaac didn't do this. He didn't step up. He didn't provide leadership in the home. He didn't take initiative. He remained passive and he let his son do it. And his son chose poorly. And the very next words we read are what? They made life bitter. For Isaac and Rebecca. So he doesn't step up. He doesn't provide leadership in the home. He doesn't provide loving leadership like the man is called to do. He doesn't take the initiative to ensure that the the Abrahamic family stays intact. So he doesn't take leadership. We know he doesn't parent his kids equally. We know that. And apparently he's not lovingly leading Rebecca. He's not leading her very well. He's not coming alongside of her and saying, hey, honey, I know we've made mistakes. I know we've blown it in a couple of areas. Let's see if we can get back together on the same page and work this out. He doesn't do any of that. 
he remains blind to the whole darn situation. He remains passive and blind. So let me ask the men in this room. Or let me ask the men within the sound of my voice. Are you providing servant leadership in your home? Are you providing loving leadership in your home to your spouse and to your family? Because make no mistake about it, the Bible is abundantly clear that that's your responsibility. It's abundantly clear. In Ephesians chapter 5, I won't make you turn there. But in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is writing to Christians in Ephesus who have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says one of the marks of being filled with the Holy Spirit is a loss of self-will. A loss of being self-centered. Which enables you to humbly and willingly serve your spouse and your family. And then what Paul does is he unpacks this by talking about how this works itself out in different relationships. Particularly amongst husbands and wives. And in verses 22 through 35, he talks about how it works itself out in in the way of of marital relationships. And I'm not going to talk about the women right now. You'll have to come back in a couple of weeks for what Paul says to the women. But here, what he says to husbands is this. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, he says this. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now there is, well, we could talk all day about that, just that one sentence. There's so much here. But no, this headship that the Lord calls husbands to, it should never bring, a, bring about an ethos of swagger and self-assertion. Self-assertion. It should never bring about uh, swagger and self-assertion. But rather, it should produce an ethos of sacrificial servant leadership. That's what it should bring about. Because what did Christ do? Well, he gave himself up for the church. Nothing less than Jesus' love for his bride, the church, becomes the model for Christian husbands. And Jesus, his own life, he said this, he taught this, and he demonstrated this. He said, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And he made himself into a servant. He made himself into a servant. Demonstrating in the most dramatic way that authority and leadership means you actually become a servant. You die to your own interests. You die, in, you die to self-centeredness in order to love and serve the other. And if there's any exercise of power within a marriage, then it's exercise to care, not crush. It's exercise to serve, not subjugate. It's exercise to facilitate the family's flourishing, not frustrate it. If there's any type of power within the marriage of of a Christian husband, it's exercise to those ends. Why? Because in the way of Christ, the way of Christ can only be done in service to the other. Because Jesus is the one who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life away as a ransom for others. See, this goes against everything uh, the world thinks about power and authority. It it goes against all of that. So a husband is to look to Jesus and say, I'm going to serve in the way of my, my master. Listen, in families, more often than not, as the man goes spiritually, so goes the family. And it will shape your children. Absolutely, will shape your children. When I was in um, seminary back in the day um, at Western Seminary in Portland, one of my one of my classmates was Sean Parnell, and Sean was the former governor of Alaska. Um, was elected in Alaska with the highest margin ever. He was this incredibly gracious man, incredibly gracious, and in we used to go on walks. We were the two old guys in the class. So we would sit for about four hours at a time and we would say, man, our minds are blown and our butts hurt. Let's walk. So we'd get up and we'd, we'd just go for a long walk and we'd talk. And he mentioned at one point about the relationship that his, his father had upon him and he wrote about it years later. He said this. He said, when I was about nine years old, my father became a follower of Christ and had such a complete life transformation that as a result, my mother, who had long been a Christian, said she had been married to two men occupying the same body. (laughs) Looking back, now listen to what he says here. Looking back, the inner transformation of my father led me to embrace Christ as my savior the very next summer. In families, more often than not, as the man goes spiritually, so goes the family. Now listen guys, listen men. 
Everything in elite institutions of our day, so higher education, government, and media, it will try to minimize and diminish the role of the man in the house. It will try to minimize and diminish the influence of a man in a child's life. And let me tell you something. All of it flies in the face of real data. All of it flies in the face of real data and the biblical teaching. Because more often than not, as the man goes in the house, so goes the family. Yeah? Here's the second thing we see. The Lord will accomplish his plans and purposes in spite of flawed people. This is the second thing we see here. The Lord will accomplish his plans and purposes in spite of flawed people. Every single person we see in this account is completely jacked up. They're completely flawed. And yet the Lord works in and through their flaws to bring about his redemptive purposes. He says, oh, you're going to go in and try to deceive the old man? Okay, well, we'll just work in and around that. I'll, I'll accomplish my purposes in spite of how stupid you are. I will, do, I will accomplish my purposes. Well, how does he do it? How does he accomplish his purposes even when he's working with such flawed individuals? Here's how. It's all about his sovereign grace. His sovereign grace is at work all the way through. It is completely sovereign because the Lord chooses Jacob while Jacob and Esau were in the womb and they hadn't done anything yet. But he chooses he's going to work through Jacob. So it's completely sovereign. And at the same time, it's completely filled with grace because Jacob is a scoundrel. He is anything but exemplary. He's quite a piece of work. He deceives and lies to the old man. This is elder abuse. That's what this is. This is nothing short of elder abuse. And there is nothing worse in our world than people who abuse either the elderly or children. And he goes in and he he basically, this is elder abuse. And yet the Lord accomplishes his purposes through it all. Because of his sovereign grace. The Lord accomplishes his work through flawed people. And I got to tell you, I find that strangely encouraging. Just radically encouraging. Did you know that when the Lord calls you and plans to use you, he factors in all of your sinfulness and stupidity? Did you know that? That is wonderfully reassuring to me. That when the Lord calls people and he, pur- he purposes their life before him, he f- has already factored in all of their sinfulness and all of their stupidity. And I love that. Uh, if you've been around TCF for any length of time, you know one of our ministry mottos is if the Lord couldn't use our mistakes, he'd have nothing to work with. And that's true. The Lord uses really flawed individuals to bring about his redemptive purposes. Gordon Wenham, in his commentary on this section, listen to what he says. He says, the narrator is not simply pointing out the fallibility of God's chosen, whose virtues often turn into vices. But rather, what he's doing is he's reasserting the grace of God. It is his mercy that that is the ultimate ground of our salvation. I love it. It's his mercy that is the ultimate ground of our salvation. This is such wonderful news. The work of the gospel doesn't depend upon our faithfulness. Although we should seek to be faithful. It doesn't give us license to be stupid and sinful. But ultimately what it means is the work of the gospel doesn't depend upon our faithfulness. Ultimately, it rests upon the Lord's sovereign grace. And he'll use us with all of our flaws and all of our shortcomings to accomplish his good work. Which means, Christian friend, you can rest in that. It's not up to you. You can simply rest and say, Lord, I know I'm, I know I'm broken, I know I'm flawed, and yet you've called me to represent you to these people. And I'm going to do it to the best of my ability, and I know I'll make mistakes. I know sometimes my motives won't be pure. I know sometimes this thing will get in the way, and yet, Lord, I'm going to rest in your sovereign grace that you choose to use flawed people to accomplish your purposes. i got to tell you, that is wonderfully reassuring. And it takes some of the pressure off of you. And so you can just rest and and walk into whatever room you're in and say, okay, Lord, I'm here. Use me how you see fit. It's wonderful. Here's the third thing we see. And I got to move quick. I'm keeping you long. Here's the third thing. The blessing of the firstborn. It's still available. We read this account and we're a little unsure about what the blessing of the firstborn is and and, and if it's only available at this one time. No, it's actually still available. The blessing of the firstborn is still available. What Esau desired and what Jacob stole and when each and every one of us crave 
is the blessing of the firstborn. The blessing of the firstborn from the father. And it's still available. The Bible tells us. I don't know if you know this. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the firstborn. Overall. Am I back on? Oh, there we go. Jesus is the firstborn overall of creation. He's God's firstborn who he brought into the world. He's the firstborn among the brothers. He's the firstborn among the dead. This means that throughout history, Jesus has lived in a state of firstborn blessing. He was in the very bosom of his father. He's lived in the closest relationship with his father. When his father looked upon him, he looked upon him with nothing but love and admiration. But what did the son do? Well, the son leaves the firstborn blessing. He comes from heaven to earth and he dies upon the cross. And as he dies, he prays. And in every other gospel account, when Jesus prays, he addresses God as God, my father. But on the cross, he doesn't address him as father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, why? Why does he address him as that way instead of addressing him as father? When every other time in the gospel accounts, he addresses him as father. Why? Here's why. Because he lost the blessing of the firstborn son. On the cross, he lost the blessing of the firstborn son. How? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. You see what that means? He redeems us. What, what Christ does is he redeemed us in order that the firstborn blessing of the Father may be given to you. So that the firstborn blessing of the Father would come to you. Which means, now here's what it means. It means the way of salvation isn't through dressing up and pretending to be something we're not. Like Jacob. A lot of people will dress up and put on religiosity. Thinking, well, if I just dress up enough and I pretend enough, then I can become good enough. And the way of salvation will come to me through that. No. No. That's not actually the way. You don't have to dress up and pretend to be something you're not. The way of Jacob is not available for you that way. That's not the way of salvation. No, the way of salvation is to actually admit that you're flawed and broken just like Jacob was. And then to clothe yourself in the righteousness of Christ. And when we do that, when we do that, when we admit our brokenness and we reach out in faith to Christ and we're clothed in his righteousness, then and only then will the blessing of the Father, the firstborn blessing of the Father, Will he look upon you with a gleam in his eyes as a firstborn child? Then and only then will the father look upon you and say, this is my firstborn. This is my firstborn child. Hebrews chapter 12, we won't turn there, but in Hebrews chapter 12 it says this, to the church of the firstborn, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You know what that means? Friend, do you know what that means? It means when you come to Christ, the Father looks upon you and he says, I see you. I value you. I love you. I've provided a way for you. Everything that is mine is yours. That's what the gospel is actually saying. The blessing of the firstborn is given to you in and through Christ. You see, when you come to Christ, you actually receive the blessing of the firstborn. The Father looks upon you and says, I see you, I value you, I love you. I've provided a way for you. Everything I have is yours. He's absorbed the, cross, the, the curse. Jesus has absorbed the cross so that you can be clothed in his righteousness. And the craving of your heart, the firstborn blessing, can be given to you. That's amazing. That's amazing. Let me pray, and then we'll close. Father, we thank you that these gospel truths are reality. That you have absorbed the cross for us. You have absorbed the curse for us. So that we can receive the firstborn blessing of God. That the Father would look upon us and not see our failures, not see our flaws, not see our shortcomings, all of our sinfulness and all of our stupidity. You see us clothed in Christ's righteousness. You see us as your firstborn child who has lived in a state of perfection with you. And you have made a way for us and you will give to us all that is yours. This is wonderful news, Father. And we, Father, we pray that it's the news that we go out into the world with each and every day. 
that we don't need to dress up and play a part. We don't need to dress up and play religion. But that we can admit that we're broken and flawed and receive the grace of the Father. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.